Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather here today and to look to your word in the next few moments as we do so, as we consider what it is that you want to do in this church, in our lives, in this community of believers. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to hear from you, that we would, for some of us, maybe answers would be given as we look through what we're about to see, and for, for many of us, maybe we would just be reminded Maybe we'll find a newfound appreciation of something that seems so familiar that we take it for granted. Lord, I pray that you would do what you would do in your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're Facebook friends with me, you probably saw this. But the other day, my son Hawk texted me. My kids are like everybody else on Christmas break. And I'm here in the office, and I get this text that said, we are in the garage playing church. It didn't surprise me, because they are pastor's kids, and I have caught my children in the past baptizing their chicken nuggets in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> They're pastor's kids. It just, it just happens. So they played church. And it didn't surprise me, but it made me laugh. Because it, it made me laugh, but it also makes me always kind of think, boy, I don't want my kids to be too weird because they're pastor's kids. Like, there are, there, there's a price to pay for being a pastor's kid. And, I, and, I, and as parents, we want to make sure that raising kids as pastor's kids doesn't, like, warp them too bad. If my kids are going to be warped, they should be warped like everybody else is warped because of their parents, right? I mean, that's like our right. If my kids leave my home and are not a little bit weird because of me and my wife, then I'll feel like, was I really present in their life? And that's like everyone's right to be, to be a little bit weird because of their folks. I thought that would be funnier, but maybe, maybe it's not as funny. Maybe your parents are all just got it together. Mine do too, by the way, but they flew home. And the, the term we're playing church was kind of funny to me because I just imagined them pretending to love one another as Christ told his disciples to. <laughs> I imagined them forgiving one another, making allowance for one another bearing with one another in their faults and saying, oh, that's okay. I'm a sinner saved by grace too. I mean, I could just see it, you know. I could see them pretending those things. And I thought, boy, if they're pretending that, I would be thrilled if they treated each other that way. Instead of, not that you treat each other terribly. You're the best kid, I know. But <laughs> she's the only one in here. <laughs> and the other, one are bo- the other ones are boys. But I just imagine them pretending in this garage. And I, what, what Hawk really meant to say is not we're pretending and we're playing church, as he said, we are having a mock worship service. We're pretending to conduct a, a public gathering for worship, is really what he meant in that text message. They were playing because they were doing the elements of a public worship service, but not really being the church. They were conducting a, conducting a gathering, but not accomplishing anything. Now, some of you who are quick, and who've heard a lot of sermons are like, oh, I see where this sermon's about to go. He's about to like be heavy-handed and talk about, we should stop playing church. Let me put your minds at ease. This is not what that is about. This is not where I'm going. I'm not going to tear down who we are or what we are. I love who we are, and I love where we are and what we are doing. At the same time, I think there are a few things that, that God has birthed in, in terms of urgencies in our heart, in my heart as pastor, in the hearts of our leadership, of our staff, who would say, yeah, we can't stand by and not 
address this. We can't stand by and not do something about this. You recall in Vision 2020, I stood up a number of times. Oh, I stood up once, actually. But I, I said a number of times, whether it was from this platform or over at our gathering, that that was not about a building project. It was not about a renovation project. Vision 2020 was about celebrating, and it, which we did, and it was about it ultimately led to a project in raising funds for this facility, but it was about how do we be the best church that we can be? How do we go forward into what God wants us to go forward into? And I mentioned a couple of things, but I didn't unpack them, and it was somewhat disappointing to some. But I didn't unpack them because I didn't have all the answers, and I just know, like, I can't sit here as pastor and, and just be frozen because I don't have the perfect plan to roll out right now in November of how this is all going to work out. Vision 2020 was about pushing a boulder down a hill and saying, we got to get the ball rolling, and if we need to make adjustments down the way. So that boulder is starting to roll. And what, what I feel in my heart over the next three weeks, we're coming back to John. Trust me, I want to come back to John. You have no idea how much I want to come back to John. But over the next three weeks, I'd like to address, the, we, we have a series called 3C. 3C is about the divine urgencies that God has given to us as a church, things that we can't stand by and, and, and not, not do. It's called 3C because there are three urgencies in my heart, and they all begin with the letter C, which, my friends, is called alliteration, if you didn't know that. I've been a pastor here for a year, and I've never done alliteration. You know that? I'm finally there, which is like my worst fear. Because half of you are like, oh, alliteration, this guy's finally preaching. And the other half is like, oh, no, he's one of those preachers. Not only am I one of those preachers, it gets worse. I'm, I'm dad joke preacher. Because three C, the three C's we'll talk about over the next three weeks, are our divine urgent C's, or urgent C's. Yeah, that's really bad. You know, you voted me in as pastor. I was 39 years old, and today I'm 41 years old, and I've been pastor in less than one year. Do the math on that. How does that work? But I guess now that I'm into my 40s, dad jokes come really easy. It escalated quickly, for sure. Now, if you're not a believer and you're like, I don't even know what I got myself into here today. If you're a guest with us and you're like, this guy, let me just tell you, I think you're in the right place. We're glad you're here. You could sit back and relax because this message really is meant for those who call Radiant Home. Even if you're a Christian, you're a believer, and you don't call Radiant Home, we're glad you're here today. At the same time, I do believe that God would speak as we look to his word, maybe answer some questions you may have that would clarify some things about Christianity. Maybe, maybe God will speak. And, and so I, I ask you to hang tight with us. But for those of you who are Christians, as we looked at, for those of you who call Radiant Home in particular, as we look to what God has played on our heart as far as a sense of urgency of what we need to do in 2020, I'd ask you to, to join me on this, this trip. Now, let me give you a spoiler alert. You guys are waiting for some, like, incredible revelation, but this sermon is about baptism. If I didn't have a church background, I think baptism would end up being one of those things that would be a deal breaker for me, like, Wait a minute, you want me to voluntarily allow someone to put my head underwater? Not a religion for me, you know? So, and for those of us who are Christians, we find it very, very familiar that perhaps it becomes that, you know, if there's a special baptism service, 
it becomes like the unofficial like senior skip day. I've been there, I've done that, I've got the t-shirt, and it was a great day when I did it, but ah, we're going to talk about that because that's part of Vision 2020, that's part of what we're going to do, and I do believe it's, it's worth discussing. But the first C that we're going to talk about comes out of 1 John chapter 5. Let's talk about 1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. I am missing our John series for sure, but um, I get to read something that John wrote. It's just not the Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 5 is written because the early church was facing a problem of uh, some form of early Gnosticism, an early teaching uh, that was perverting the Gospel. So John wrote with the idea that he wanted to expose these false teachers, and he wanted, he wanted to give assurance of salvation to those who were in the church. First five verses to get us to that first C. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Anyone had to take a guess what this first C would be of these three C's? Commandments. Commands. What Christ has commanded. It's, there's, it's an urgent thing that we do what Christ has commanded us to do. Look at that, what we just read. God's people keep his commandments. They are not burdensome. They're not religious ritual commands. They are commands that we keep because we love him. And yes, there are times where his commands are easier said than done. There are times when his commands are, are, are not necessarily convenient, but his people keep his commands. Now, I will say that we never bat a thousand on this. We were originally rescued people. We came to him because we couldn't earn it. And it's unrealistic to expect the fact that we have been rescued, that now all of a sudden we can now keep his commands just right. But he has given us his spirit. He indwells, the Holy Spirit indwells us when we become Christians to help us to keep his commands. So his commands do matter. But our salvation doesn't depend on our performance. Let me say that again because if 14-year-old Jerome was sitting in this church, he needed to hear that. Our salvation did not depend on our performance, but our salvation is influenced, or our, our performance is really influenced by our salvation because he is transforming us from the inside out. What are some of Christ's commands? Let me give you a sampling. Here we go. Jesus told, these are some of the commands of Jesus. Repent, follow him, let your light shine, be reconciled to one another, don't lust, make no oaths, don't resist evil with evil, Love and pray for your enemies. Seek God's kingdom first. Don't judge the speck in your neighbor's eye while missing the plank in your own. Notice all the other ones were really brief, but I, I wanted to expand that one and not just say don't judge because that gets misused all the time. Treat people as you want to be treated. Beware of false prophets. Ask God to send out workers. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Come to Jesus for rest. Confront brothers in, pri in private first. Forgive, how many, forgive, and how many times did Jesus say forgive? Seven times? Seven times 70, which is a ridiculous amount of times. She's making a point there. Don't be legalistic about that, because you'll drive someone crazy. 
But he's saying, forgive with a ridiculous generosity. Render to Caesar what is his, which means pay your taxes. We'll give the world what is the world's, give God what is rightfully his. Love God, love your neighbor, keep guard against sin, make disciples, preach the gospel, be on guard against greed, caring for, care for the poor, abide in him, love one another. Do you have your pencils sharpened? Because we're about to spend just 60 seconds on each of these for the next half an hour. You ready? No, that's r- ridiculous. It's not even wise to try to attempt to address the 27 things I just mentioned. So I want to narrow the focus, and I've already kind of given it away. I want to narrow the focus to a type of commandment that Christ gave that is a little different. And we call them, um, well, they're, they're specific. We call them ordinances of the church. So all these commands I just read can be applied individually, but there are some commands that his early followers, his disciples said, these are best done together. They were not commands specifically to the church because the church did not exist until he died and rose again. And then the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, the church is born. So Jesus did not give these commands to the church like Paul gives in his letters to the churches that exist. He gave it to his followers. And his followers said, hey, this is done better together. So what became a command for his followers becomes a command for his church, which is the gathering of his followers, the body of Christ followers they're called ordinances in, in evangelical Protestant churches. We identify just two. But if you're of a different tradition, you probably know there's other things that are identified. We don't even, they don't even call them ordinances. They call them sacraments. And we'll talk about that here at the very end. But baptism and communion. Can I be honest with you? When it comes to communion, this church is killing it. We're about to do this, to, this as we close today. We do it every single month. Not only do we do it, we do it with some style. We're doing really good there. When it comes to baptism, I'm not blaming this church. I'm blaming me because I'm the pastor. I guess we're disobedient to the commands of Christ because we didn't even try to baptize anyone in this first year of me being a pastor. If there's an urgency on my heart, an urgency that he's put on the hearts of the leadership of this church to follow Christ's commands, all of his commands, to the best of my ability, to the best of our ability as a church, then I think baptism needs to be one of those things that need to be addressed, and that's why I'm addressing it today. Both for those who have never taken that step and never, never really thought it was something that's worth their time, and those of us who have grown so familiar Perhaps we've lost the wonder and the awe. And we're pretty okay with the fact that we haven't even tried to baptize anyone. You have your Bibles. We're going to go back and, and look at some text here. But let me talk about baptism specifically. It's, it's practiced amongst Christians of all traditions and all types and all backgrounds. But what's funny about baptism is that although it's practiced amongst Christianity, all over Christianity, there is really no unity about how we do it. Christians of sound theological traditions disagree and hotly debate different things about baptism. What is the exact meaning? What is the mode? What is the effect? What is, how do you go about doing it, the administration of it? And while that's not the best look for the church, that we all don't, dis, we all don't agree, it does kind of indicate that baptism is pretty important, does it not? Otherwise, we wouldn't be wasting our time debating it. I was a Baptist kid as, as growing up. Well, actually, my dad was in the military. 
we moved around a lot, so we would try different churches. We'd do the base chapel. We would do churches in, in town. But I did a good amount of time in Baptist churches. And it made sense in a Baptist church that we would baptize people because it was on the sign. And then I went to a different kind of church, and they do it too. And I'm like, oh, this is not just a Baptist thing. The word, you know, I mean, our, the Baptist church is named after John the what? Baptist, but in the Greek, it's actually John the Baptizer. We know the story of Jesus being baptized by, by John the Baptist. If you don't, then forgive me because I'm not going to tell it to you, but you can find it. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, who was the forerunner. And, but my question is, did you ever stop and say, where, where did John get this whole idea of baptism? Do you find it in the Old Testament law? Did God give it to Moses? But yet we come on the scene after this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and John's out there in the wilderness with the big crowd standing in the Jordan River saying, come on, bring it, get in this water. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and we talk about our baptism being a believer's baptism. So there is a little difference. Where did John get this baptism? This baptism of repentance, well, he did get it from Judaism. You see, if I was a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism, I'd become what's called a proselyte Jew. And there is a couple of things that need to take place to, become, to, to convert, to switch. Now, you'll never become a Jewish person because you're not ethnically a Jewish person, but you can adopt Judaism as a religion. It's called being a proselyte. Here are the, here are the requirements. You have to eat a covenant meal. You have to acknowledge the law. Seems reasonable enough. You have to offer a sacrifice. There is a ceremonial washing. There's where baptism's kind of coming from. And then you have to get circumcised. Well, you have to be very serious. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be crass here, but it's, you have to trust me. Believe me. I know I was a youth pastor. and You expect this kind of behavior from a youth pastor. Trust me. I don't mean to be funny here. Circumcision is one of those things that you have to do to become a Jew as an adult, you know, Gentile, to become a Jewish person. It means there's a price to pay. Don't, I know you're, you're, thank you for not smiling. There is a price to pay. You have to be really serious about making this decision that I'm going to have this new identity and this new person. And you think about what it means for the price to pay when we come to be our new identity and our new allegiance when we come to Christ. Stop laughing. Stop smiling. No, I'm just kidding. So there are a number of things that Gentile people had to do to become Jewish people, to embrace Judaism. The ceremonial washing does come from the Old Testament. In Exodus, we read that there was a washing of clothes as a symbolic act of purification. In Leviticus, there was Aaron who had to wash himself before and after entering the Holy of Holies. And John is in the Jordan River with this crowd talking about the kingdom of hand is coming, the kingdom is coming, and, and it doesn't matter if you're Jewish anymore. It doesn't matter if you keep the law. What really matters is the condition of your heart, and you need to repent. And as a sign of repentance, come in this water and get cleaned. Get cleansed as a sign of repentance. The word baptism comes from Matthew chapter, the, the baptism that we use when we talk about baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, comes from Matthew chapter 28. Turn there real quick. I mean, you have this memorized, I'm sure. 
Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples before he ascends to the Father. And he says this, his closing words in Matthew chapter, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. There's a lot there, but that word baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo literally means to wash, to plunge, or to soak, or to dip. Now you could translate that word, and we do in the Bible, we do. Translators who translate the Greek do translate the word baptizo to wash, or to dip, or to soak, when they do something like Mark chapter 7, verse 4. For the Pharisees did not eat unless they washed hands. They didn't want to just carry the word over, which is called transliteration, and say the Pharisees didn't eat until they baptized their hands. But literally, that's what the word means. Jesus did not wash his hands before he ate, which upsets some of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. So you could translate baptizo, or you can transliterate, which means you carry over the word and kind of like Englishize it. Baptizo, baptism, baptizer. Which is what we see here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So literally, you can say, go and make disciples and wash them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that makes no sense. Why did some translators choose to translate and others chose to translate in different spots? Because we know what Jesus meant. We know because of what John the Baptist did. What Jesus submitted himself to with John the Baptist. And I'm glad he did. Otherwise, my seminary would be like Midwestern Dippers Theological Seminary and not Baptist Seminary. We would know John the Baptist is John the Plunger. So anyways, so for us, baptism is a declaration that is public and it's personal, but it's a declaration that is something that is already true of us. There is not salvation on the line when we get baptized, although there are some traditions that teach that. It's what's already true of us, that we have a new identity in Christ. And, and the act of baptism actually symbolizes the old life as we go under the water, dying and coming up out of the water with a new life. Baptism is a public declaration of a new identity. That's it. Simple point. And I know you guys are thinking, wow, Jerome, I knew that. I knew that as a kid. I was baptized at age five. That's great. May we have some wonder and awe of this sign that's taken on by people who come to Christ, who make a declaration. And I would say it's not quite like getting circumcised, but there is an outward sign to the world who's watching that I'm making a new allegiance. I'm making a new life, that Christ has done something for me. And if we sit and, and golf clap baptism, then I fear that maybe we've lost some awe and wonder. We ought to be like shouting. But we can't do that. Because we don't have a baptism. But we'll talk about that in a second. Let me ask this question. When should someone be baptized? I know there's different traditions, but my response would be as soon as possible. In the early church, there wasn't a whole lot of lag time between conversion and baptism. It was nearly simultaneous. We see this pattern in Acts chapter 8. When Philip approaches an Ethiopian eunuch... If you have your Bibles, actually, let's turn there real quick. And I'll be, let me walk through this. Acts chapter 8. Philip was a uh, 
one of the guys that the apostles appointed to serve in the church, and he approached, uh, he encountered an Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch is a man who was castrated to, because he's in charge. He works in the palace. I know, there's like a weird sub-theme to this message between circumcision and castration. Just go with it. Um, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met a treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandak, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk alongside that carriage. I don't know how fast this carriage was moving, but Philip must have been moving. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? There's probably a whole sermon here about sharing the gospel with people, but we're just going to look at the baptism side of it. The man said, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture that he'd been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb in silence before the the shearers, he was humbled and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So bringing the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and he went down into the water, and Philip was baptized. Now Philip starts sharing the gospel from the book of Isaiah. So who knows how long this took or what he said. But obviously, well, I can't say obviously, but it seems to be that baptism was part of Philip's presentation, which is weird because I never share about baptism when I share the gospel with someone who doesn't know. But for that eunuch to say, what about that water? Let's do this thing right there shows an immediacy that takes place that there is a new life, there's a new belief, a new identity in Christ there is an immediate response to salvation. You see the same thing with Peter on the day of Pentecost when the, there's a report that 3,000 came to faith and they were baptized that day. So what does that mean for you and me? If you've never been baptized, if you've been a Christian for a while or, or a short time, and no one's challenged you to be baptized or just kind of an optional thing that maybe one day it'll roll around, my encouragement to you is do it. Which is a weird thing to say when we don't have a place to baptize people. I mean, we have a place. There's a pool and there's a, another church that we have to borrow. But one of the things in Vision 2020 was to put a baptismal. And I kind of view it right here. Like right here. You know what I'm saying? Can you see me? Would this work? Yeah? And that, those funds are in. There's a couple of things that Larry and I are talking about, about the specifics of the vessel in which we will baptize people. But we're really close. We're so close that you can sign up to be baptized right now. Which is crazy because there's no place to baptize you in this building. It's kind of like buying tickets before the movie comes out, right? Like, I pre-purchased my Star Wars tickets. I pre-registered for baptism. 
I was part of that inaugural class of baptism, of baptism candidates in this building. Actually, the next slide will show you. If you text that same magical number I talked about earlier before this message, the word baptism, it will send you a link to a registration form, and we will collect those people, and we will be in contact with you. We'll let you know when the baptism is going to happen. And I honestly, there's part of me that wants to hit express and make this happen next week. It would be a miracle. But it's happening. Wouldn't it be cool if we did it on the 20th anniversary? Oh. So cool. Take your phones out. Text the number. I can wait. Church, let me ask you a question. If you've been baptized, you've, you've, you've made your profession of faith. Are you with me? Don't we want to see the people who have not taken this step of identity and declared to the world? So we could all wait. Tell the person next to you to take their phone out and do it already. And for us who find it so familiar, for those of us who had the t-shirt, we've been there, we've done that, and literally they're... T-shirts are the thing to do. It gets printed, something fresh and cool. It depends on how cool your church is. No, yeah. (laughs) For the rest of us who will be witnesses to baptism, I am absolutely convinced it's not senior skip day. It's an opportunity for us as a church to rejoice and to celebrate what God is doing in our midst. That's why I want to do it here on a Sunday morning when you're here, there's nothing wrong with doing it in a pool. I think it's cool. There's nothing wrong doing it at a lake. There's nothing wrong doing it in the Jordan River. If I could get rebaptized in the Jordan River, I would do it. I would renounce my faith just to get baptized again in the Jordan River. <laughs> but what an element of the life of this church, of what God's going to do in this next season when we celebrate what God is doing. I already have, by the way, if you think you're the first person to be baptized at Radiant, you're wrong. There's a little girl who keeps bugging me like every week. Bugging is not the right term. Can I be baptized? You're the first on the list. So sign up, you can be the number two on the list. And I'm excited about what God's going to do this next season. And I think that's one of those things that God gave it to us for a purpose because I think there's a purpose more than just for that person who's experiencing that but for all of us as a church to experience it together. At this time, we're going to have our team come forward. We're going to serve communion, which is the other ordinance of the church. I hinted earlier that there is a difference between what some churches call a sacrament, a means of grace, oftentimes salvation is tied up into it, or an ordinance. A sacrament... if you have a Catholic background or maybe Eastern Church or even some uh, Western churches, it's about God giving something, a gift of grace, that there is an act of God that takes place in the midst of receiving the sacrament and is an ordinance, which would be the traditional Protestant North American church for sure. It's kind of a representation, a symbolism. A... But can I say that I find both those choices really unsatisfying. When we receive the body and blood, I don't believe it turns into the body and blood of Christ. But nor do I think it's just some token expression. 
there's something spiritual that takes place. I'm not a sacramentalist, but there's something that takes place where we meet God in this moment. I mean, if you want a token, you could have a token. But I want to meet with the Lord as I receive and remember what he's done.